Welcome to the Ambition Incubator podcast. Whether you're a seasoned professional, entrepreneur, or keeping your edge sharp until the time is right to launch your master plan, you're in the right place. I'm here to share with you what I learned on my quest to find the best techniques to elevate your potential and master the art of success. I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. As an entrepreneur, I've built and supported successful businesses for nearly two decades. In this podcast, you'll hear about the tools developed at the cutting edge of what we know about human biology and intelligence, and the people who use them. Stay tuned to hear about neuroscience concepts and hacks, and interviews with experts that will help improve your game. This, my friend, is where we take it to the next level. Welcome to episode one. Today, I want to take a brief look at what got us here in terms of how we imagine our brains work and some of the thinking that has shaped the worldview that many of us accept as fact. I'm going to also start getting into how your brain might be working against you and how to get your head around that. So let's start with the concept of worldview. It's a pretty contentious thing to start with straight off the bat, but hey, it's not a game of tiddlywinks as they're fond of saying in my kendo club. A worldview is just that, a view, an opinion. And an opinion held by one person, or one million people, does not make it fact. There will always be another worldview, or an opposing worldview, that is equally valid, invalid, or opinionated, depending on how you look at it. One of the issues about worldviews is that sometimes they've originated as a way to explain something, and that's then been taken literally. I find this can be especially true the further away from the idea source we get, as lack of understanding or misinterpretation takes hold. Other times, the authority of the source is so revered that the might of the mind that conceived the idea remains unquestioned. Let's take Plato, for instance. What, you might ask, has Plato got to do with neuroscience? That's an excellent question, and I am glad you asked. Plato, to do a quick recap, was a Greek philosopher who died in 348 BC. And as a little detour to illustrate worldviews, I just use the term BC because I was raised in Western Europe where we set our calendars according to the Christian era. However, I have on my wall a wonderful painting that I bought from a Thai art student back in 2003. And the year that he painted it is on the bottom corner of the canvas along with his signature. He painted it in 2546. Now that doesn't mean that he was a time traveller, though it would have been fun. But it does mean that my worldview, even if I share it with millions of other people, is still just a worldview. It's not how the world actually is. I mean, technically speaking, when I was talking to that guy, he may have been thinking, wow, you are so far behind the times. You're like 500 years behind me. (laughs) It's like they say, if you don't know you're in a box, how will you ever get beyond it? So worldviews are tricky and pervasive and definitely open to interpretation and revision. But getting back to Plato, our boy Plato was clearly a smart cookie and a profound thinker. He founded the Academy, which was the first seat of higher learning in the Western world, and he's one in a line of philosophers of note, having been taught by Socrates and in turn being a teacher to Aristotle. I mean, it's like namedropping.com in Plato's world. According to Wikipedia, Plato is often ranked as one of the most influential people in human history. And the English mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead rather humorously said that the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Wow, talk about damning with faint praise, Alfred. (laughs) So basically, Plato is the granddaddy of the Western worldview. And how or what 
Could he possibly have known about neuroscience way back when, I hear you ask? Another excellent question. One of my pet subjects at the moment is how much wisdom has been observed and passed down through the millennia and how much of it is proving to be remarkably accurate. Anyone who has meditated, for example, is following a long tradition of contemplation and relaxation that goes back thousands of years, but is now being backed by science as one of the best things we can do for our brain health and general well-being. How did they know that back in the day? How did they develop these techniques? We'll probably never know for sure, but they got it right. Not everyone got everything right, however, but many of those ancient pieces of thinking still hold sway. And even without an Instagram follower to his name, good old Plato managed to create a position as uber-influencer all the same. And when you're a great thinker, like Plato surely was, it's probably inevitable that you'll think about thinking at some point, which he did. And what did he think about our brains? What were his insights? Well, Plato, like Socrates, believed that there were three things, forces, if you like, in operation in our brain. Now, I am not a Plato scholar, and I'm going for a very quick breakdown here. So I'm going to summarize those three things as survival, emotion, and logic. When the science started to get moving, this seemed to be supported by the things that they could see. And the idea of a brain that evolved in three stages, the triune brain, was born. The first one, we were told, was the lizard brain or the reptilian brain. You'll probably have heard that phrase, and it's meant to indicate our survival mode. Basically, if that's the level you're operating at, then you're probably not having a good day. Next, to get added to the sedimentary evolution of our brain in the triune model, was the limbic system, or emotional brain, the bits that are common to mammals and social animals. And then finally, there was a wonderful, exclusive to humans, layer of rationality added on top that just made us better than all the other critters, our neocortex the seat of rationality, the tamer of the lower levels of our brain. In a worldview where humans are the most important, clever, resourceful, adaptable, dominant, and not to mention valuable species on the planet, that really works to support it, doesn't it? And you can view this as human hubris, or you can view this as the natural order of things. That's entirely dependent on the level of consciousness that you're operating at. I'm just here to lob the occasional Molotov cocktail at our perception of truth. And today's Molotov cocktail comes to us courtesy of cutting-edge neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett. I was first introduced to Dr. Barrett's work through a program that looked at the neuroscience of change. She's a distinguished university professor at Northeastern University and works with both the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's been awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience and has written books including How Emotions Are Made and more recently Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. According to Dr. Barrett, the idea of a triune brain, that is, the reptile brain that evolved over time to include newer and better layers, and thereby arrive at the shiny piece of superkit we have between our ears today, is just plain wrong. As is the idea that our brains are for thinking. This is another hold-the-phone kind of moment, isn't it? <laughs> if our brains are not for thinking, what are they for? Surely we think therefore we are, or something like that? Nope. According to LFB, as I'm going to call her for the sake of brevity, that's not what we think at all, ironically. Her book is Laugh Out Loud Funny, by the way, and I'd strongly recommend it. It's not a scientific text per se, but contains a series of informal essays on various aspects of our brains and how they make us what we are. In her introduction, LFB notes that the essays are not intended to tell us what to think about human nature, but instead to invite us to consider what kind of humans we want to be. And after a brief introduction, I think it's fair to say that she takes a pop at poor old Plato pretty early on in proceedings. 
but maybe more so at those more recent ideas of how our brains evolved. She says it's unnecessary to reconcile the older view of how the brain worked with the newer view because one of them is wrong. The triune brain, she goes on to say, is one of the most successful and widespread errors in all of science. And let's face it, it wouldn't be the first time that scientists, using the data and tools at their disposal, with a healthy dose of worldview on top, have got things wrong. For example, the idea that the sun rotates around the Earth, or that the Earth was flat, or that a vapour called miasma was the source of disease, or how about that mercury could cure many diseases or even grant immortality. And what about the idea that Neanderthals were part of the Homo sapien evolution? Now we know that they coexisted with us and for quite a long time. So much of what we previously accepted as true has been replaced by new information and new data. And of course, as we learn and discover more, we may get to another stage where we realise that this isn't quite right either. But it's a step on the journey of understanding and not one that we can skip past. So here's what our view of our brains and their functions is starting to look like in the light of work by Lisa Feldman Barrett and others. The brain is an interconnected system that is designed to do one thing, and that thing is in thinking. It's to keep us alive and to manage the resources within our bodies that help us to do that. It does this in ways that we don't even think of as being related to staying alive. And because our way of living and working has evolved at such a ridiculous pace over the last few generations, the strategies that the brain evolved to cope in a different world are now being tasked with managing our interactions with a world that our brains haven't had time to co-evolve with. And of course, if you were wondering what the heck this has to do with being an entrepreneur or scaling a business, here's my super neat segue. Because our brains are so ancient and our way of life is so new, our brains don't always perceive risk or threat at the level that it's actually being presented to us. Do you remember those videos that used to go around a few years ago of cats reacting in panic to things like courgettes and cucumbers that were being surreptitiously placed in their paths? Well, poor Kitty, who in this instance represents your brain, was like, oh, holy cat flaps, what? And then a top level panic ensued. What's going on in a scenario like this for most of us is that our brains are scanning the data that we have at our disposal in our memory banks, both conscious and unconscious, to try and find the fastest and best way to get us away from perceived danger. Now, the best way, of course, can also be read as the most conservative way in terms of mitigating risk in a lot of instances. And of course, many of the threats just turn out to be courgettes or zucchini if your cat happens to be an American. And they're not deadly vipers or whatever it was that that poor cat thought as she jumped a vertical meter to evade the deadly threat. So when we're not aware of how our brain is trying to operate or we haven't tracked down the actual internal triggers, then even though we'll stay alive, we're at risk of blowing our opportunities by avoiding them, quite often totally unnecessarily. In a discussion recently about risk, I pointed out that we are risk averse not just because of the physical risk, but also the emotional risk that there is. There are a few lovely models that we can use to check in on what's actually happening in our brains and emotions. David Rock uses the acronym SCARF, standing for Status, Certainty, Autonomy, Relatedness and Fairness, while Laurie Shook uses Be Safe and Certain, which stands for Belonging, Status, Autonomy, Fairness, Expectations and Certainty. I like Shook's model and I'll put a link to her website in the show notes because it wraps the various emotions up in a phrase that more or less summarizes what the brain wants for us to be safe and certain. 
So how would monitoring the impact of our actions, interactions or ideas help us to improve our chances of success? Okay, let's take some of the common stumbling blocks when someone is making a decision to go for it in some way. That could be starting a business, asking for a raise, making a change in their lifestyle or relationship. If we are concerned about the consequences of the action we want to take, then we start to hold back. And we may not even be aware that we're doing it. We might procrastinate or deliberately miss an opportunity or rationalize away any potential positives in the situation. Our brains are biased to see more negatives than positives because that had the evolutionary advantage of keeping us alive. But it's not really so good at assessing the level of risk that we face. Social embarrassment, for example, might be uncomfortable, but it's not normally life-threatening. We might avoid doing something, for example, because our status might be questioned. This could include having our authority or qualifications questioned, or whether we feel good enough. Our status ties very closely to our sense of self-worth, and when this takes a hammering, we don't like it. This is perceived as a threat because it will feel uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable. We might project forward to a worst-case scenario where our reputation will be ruined or our message will be ridiculed or we'll fall flat on our faces and no longer be the hero figure we want to be for our families. Similarly, we might avoid something because we can't be certain about how it will go. Taking the leap to leave that corporate job or pivot to a new way of doing things could well make us think along the lines of better the devil you know. So we stick with what we know. And if that known but unsatisfactory state is too out of balance with what we truly want, It will kill us slowly on the inside. But hey, good job, brain. We avoided the threat, right? It's sometimes easy to be hard on ourselves in these situations and come down heavy on a brain that literally thinks it could be saving our lives. I mean, who wants to die of embarrassment, right? There's a great analogy that David Trelevin uses to help people understand working with a brain that has experienced trauma, but it works equally well to understand the brain in these situations, I think. If you want to try this now, if you can do it safely, give it a try as I talk through it. If you're driving or something, just leave it until later. First of all, make a fist as tightly as you can with your non-dominant hand. I mean, like really clench it, white knuckle tight. Got it? This tightly clenched fist represents your brain trying to do its job as it sees it. This is the job that it has evolved to do and prepared for over hundreds of thousands of years. It is at the top of its game, so to speak. It's very good at what it does, if occasionally misunderstood or underappreciated. Now, try to use the fingers of the other hand to unclench this tight fist. It's really difficult, if not impossible, right? Because they're pretty much equal if opposing forces. Now, having tried it that way, we know it's a struggle. And it's not really going to work to peel those fingers back as long as that fist is tightly clenched. So let's try something else. Let's try not forcing it. Radical, right? Instead of trying to peel those fingers back, simply cup your open hand and use it to support the clenched fist. As you do this, try thinking about all the work that your brain does to keep you alive. All the stuff that goes on day in, day out, even when you're asleep, without you ever having to do anything. Your breathing, your heartbeat, your digestion, all this and so much more being coordinated on your behalf by your brain. Imagine saying to your brain, wow, good job. I really appreciate all of these amazing things that you do. Do you notice anything different now? Is your fist clenched quite so tightly now that you've taken a different approach to it? I've shared this exercise with so many people now and it's such a wonderful metaphor. I can't think of an example of someone who didn't feel their clenched fist relax and become more open to possibilities. 
And this works in so many aspects of our lives and interactions with others. You've maybe heard the phrase, meeting someone where they are. Well, I think we need to meet ourselves where we are too. Well, what do I mean by that, meeting ourselves where we are? Well, take for example one of those times where we just don't have all the answers yet. Sometimes we don't know or haven't worked out what we truly want. And sometimes we're just trying something on to see how well it would suit. And that's okay. It's good to experiment and to refine both our direction and our strategies. Otherwise, we end up just sticking to a plan that doesn't take into account all the information and experience we've acquired along the way, or the self-understanding we gain as we start to learn how our brains work. Recently, I was in a group Q&A with Alyssa Cohen, who's currently recognised as one of the top startup coaches in the world, and she said something that I thought was such a smart, relevant way to address this. She said that we need to get comfortable with uncertainty. And she gave an example of someone who was in a transition phase, which so many people are these days. And that's one of the places where we feel most vulnerable. Her advice was that we need to think about how we want to frame our transition to others and that we should effectively not let ourselves be taken by surprise when somebody asks. She used the phrase, have it in your back pocket. And I love that idea because it means that we don't get caught short. We've given a thought and we have something that is the right answer for now. And be honest about it if you're exploring your options. It's okay to say that. It's okay to tell someone that you know what you really love. For example, the work you've been doing in accounting. But you know that big corporate isn't where you see yourself in 10 years time. It's okay to be on a journey. We're all constantly evolving and learning. Well, at least if we're doing it right, we are. So looping back to LFB, she notes that the triune brain model is easy to buy into because of how close it feels to the battle that can sometimes rage within us between our wants and our shoulds. This battle is something that we face in so many areas of life. And it's one that we'll definitely be addressing under the heading of goal setting here at some stage. And we still hear from various sources about the emotional limbic system, which again is dispelled as part of the successful scientific error that gave us the triune brain in the first place. But one of the things about some of the models that are still in use to help us understand the brain is that they can actually help us start the journey. Like using parables or fairy tales to help kids start to understand various things about the world. We just have to remember that they're not literal. It's like that fascination that we have with personality categorization. You may be familiar with some, like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or horoscopes and the multitude that are used in personnel assessments. There's an almost infinite list of them that we can categorize ourselves against. And within the answers, we see things that we recognize and things come up that are not necessarily legally binding, so to speak, but they do give us some insights into ourselves, our actions and our interactions. And, you know, I think that's pretty useful. I can't say that any one of these systems is absolutely watertight or will give us a 100% picture of who we are or how we'll do things. Credible edutainment is how I've heard them described recently. But what they do very effectively is give us a jumping off point to consider our tendencies when it comes to various tasks and situations in our lives. I'll give you an example. At a coaching summit last year, one of the demonstrations featured Gretchen Rubin, whose work is very popular. Ruben has created an ultra-simple assessment tool, which she calls the Four Tendencies. The test consists of eight simple questions, and then the system assigns you into one of four types or tendencies. I have to say I was very sceptical, but I duly completed the test as part of the session with full confidence that this particular sorting hat session would result in me being labelled a questioner. Much to my surprise, or to be more honest, irritation, I came up as a rebel. 
but that's no use to me, I fumed internally. A good friend helped me out by acting as a sort of control group and took it as well. I fully expected him to weigh in as an upholder, but he was categorised as an obliger. We were both a little bemused, but in the reflective aftermath, we took on board that some of our self-perceptions were maybe more how we wanted to be than how we actually were. And this is it, isn't it? Sometimes we're not looking to do a doctorate in psychology or neurology or anthropology or any of the other peopleologies. But having a foothold to start the thinking process is really useful. It's really more of a platform to start questioning how we do things. These tests, like the analogies used to describe our brains, have a great advantage. They're fun and they're easy to remember. It's interesting to see if we recognise ourselves in the descriptions. We start to recognise our friends, colleagues and loved ones too and may quite happily take on board suggestions to try things differently. What's not to like? What got you here won't get you there is a lovely paraphrasing of one of Einstein's observations about problem solving. And a lot of these tools help us to reflect on thought patterns and habits that we may not even have noticed in ourselves before. All of this awareness takes us a step closer to self-understanding and being able to decide what we want and what we're willing to do to achieve it. One of Plato's most enduring works is The Cave, in which he muses on the nature of our reality and whether it's like the shadows cast on the wall of a cave by a fire that we're unaware of. It's no small amount of ironic that Plato's theories on our human nature have in themselves created a kind of cave that scientists like Lisa Feldman Barrett are only now guiding us out of. We can, of course, start to examine the possibility that we are also living in a cave and to start examining that worldview, the box that we quite often don't even know we're in. This is where the magic happens and this is where we create the freedom to reinvent ourselves and the way we see the world. So I'm going to wrap up there, but there's plenty of things to check out in the show notes if this has got your curiosity going. And if the episode struck any chords with you, I would love to hear about it. If you've tried the clenched fist exercise, let me know how it went. You can drop a comment or head on over to LinkedIn to connect. Thanks for listening. That is all from me, Deirdre Morrison, and the Ambition Incubator podcast this time. Over and out. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips, and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.